where common sense, honest conversation, and thought-provoking discussions thrive in a completely independent forum. This is the Roundup Podcast. I'll be the first to admit that I love a little bit of Roundup in my life. Roundup in my life. Here now is your host. He is quite a character. His name is Jeff. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Jeff. Jeff Eager. Hello and welcome to the Oregon Roundup Podcast. I am recording today on the afternoon of March 2nd, 2023, Nice to talk to you again. We didn't have a podcast last week because I ran out of time. Happy to get back in the saddle today. No guests today. It'll just be me rambling. And I thought that I'd take this opportunity to update you all on a couple of Oregon scandal things. I'm going to call this episode, I think, Scandal-rama, because we've been covering a couple of scandals affecting the state of Oregon for a while now. I have some substantive updates on those issues, and I want to write about them, but I don't have time to write about them right now, which is kind of a funny thing about podcasting and the newsletter. Podcasting, the relationship between the amount of my time that goes into creating a podcast and the amount of time it takes you to listen to it is pretty close to one to one. You know, there's some stuff that gets cut out of these episodes. And I I tend to do a little bit of prep before recording, although less today than usual, even, you know, I spend on average, I think, an hour to an hour and 15 minutes to record one of these episodes, including prep and everything else. Then, of course, I have the very able Stacey Hoblitzel, who does the editing, which would take me a lot longer if I knew how to do that, but I don't. So, But my end of it's about hour, hour and 15 minutes. When I write one of the Roundup newsletters, depending on the subject matter, kind of how much research I need to do in it, in it or on it, on average, I'd say three to four hours is what it takes me to crank one of those things out, believe it or not. It doesn't take as long on the kind of more opinion-y pieces like the There's a Hope for Portland piece that came out, I think, on Monday, maybe Tuesday. Stuff that's more like reporting or whatever my version of reporting is takes longer because that takes a significant amount of research into the subject matter, oftentimes talking to people that are sources or quasi-sources or know more about a situation than I do. There tends to be more links in those stories. So, for example, the stories about the OLCC stuff and whether anyone in Kotex administration knew about it, that takes a long time to nail all that stuff down. So it takes longer to do those. But then you read the newsletters in a few minutes. I guess the podcast is a more selfish thing for me to do. And that's why I'm doing these updates. I'll likely be writing an update to one or both of these kind of scandal things soon when I have time and when I, it kind of the stuff I have reaches a, a breaking point where I just need to get it, get it all out. But for now, I'll, I'll share the updates that I, that I have with you in this format. A little bit about, you know, kind of what I'm trying to do here with the mix of stuff that we're doing for the Roundup right now. The big change this year, 
has been we're doing kind of more of the reporting stuff and you might call it investigative reporting that makes it sound more glamorous and probably more formal and professional than what it it is examples of those would be the you know the OLCC stuff that I've done it would be include the the reporting on the Sam Bankman freed associate donation of $500,000 to the Democratic Party of Oregon stuff. Those are kind of the two main veins that we've been following so far in our investigatory work. And that's new this year and kind of new on purpose and, well, new on purpose for sure. And the reason why I wanted to start doing that stuff and adding it to what traditionally the Roundup has been, which is really mostly opinion. Opinion has value, and that's why I do it. I don't know if my opinion has value, but in theory, opinion has value. And I think especially the kind of opinion we try to put out at the Roundup, which is kind of a sober, center-right perspective on issues affecting Oregon and nationally that tries to be well thought out, not reactive, and tries to highlight opinions or deliver the type of opinion that people don't often get exposed to, especially in Oregon. Nationally, there's all kinds of people who do that kind of stuff and do it way better than I do. In Oregon, there's there's not a lot of it. There's just not opinion journalism on the center right in Oregon, with a few exceptions, and I'm, I'm even trying to think of opinion journalism in the written form in Oregon, what there is out there. I don't think there is. Every once in a while, someone will get an op-ed into the Oregonian or the Bulletin or somewhere else from a center-right perspective. But other than that, it's just not out there. And so, you know, that's what I've been doing through the Roundup for for years now, and I enjoy doing it. I'm going to keep doing it. I think there's value to it. The other thing that has value from my perspective is getting facts out that otherwise wouldn't be out. And there is a dearth in Oregon of people who cover the news from a center-right perspective, and that makes a difference. It means that the folks that run our state, who are all Democrats, are being covered by people that are more or less their ideological, if not partisan, allies. And while some journalists do a pretty good job of getting past that, and they do cover things that are critical or condemning of elected leaders in Oregon, the gist of the coverage is pretty easy on on the Democrats who run the state, in my opinion, compared to when you compare it to the track record that the people who run our state have, which is, I think, objectively abysmal, even if you measure the performance by their standards. So even if you say, okay, fine, your goal is to increase equity, quote unquote, in Oregon, how have you done with that? They've done terribly with it even by their definition of equity, have made equity worse in Oregon. If they say their goal is to help the those less fortunate, their record is terrible too. Everything they do to increase the cost of living for people, so land use system, climate change, you know, lenient drug laws, all of that stuff, defund the police, 
all of that stuff falls most heavily on the people with the least in our state. And so they're just failing. A lot of what I've, I've done historically is to point out that they're failing. So I really started doing that during the, the COVID lockdowns when I kind of came to the conclusion fairly early on that the, the lockdowns that Kate Brown was pushing, they weren't actually doing anything. And I spent the time to figure out how to prove that they're not doing anything, at least to me and wrote a lot about that at the time and then have focused on other things since then to point out just that the the consequences of what these guys are doing frequently are very bad. And so that's oftentimes kind of an ideological difference with them that, you know, your progressive ideas are not accomplishing your stated progressive goals and or your progressive ideas are garbage to begin with, both of which I think are true. And that's fun to do. But the other end of it is the fact that the people that run our state, just from a, an aptitude standpoint and from a, an honesty standpoint and from an ethical standpoint, do a really bad job. Really, really bad job. Oregon is terribly governed by almost any objective metric that you could come up with. Think about the massive spending debacles we've had from the Cover Oregon website to any number of other things since then. It came out with, you know, Measure 110 passes, decriminalizes hard drugs, and then the state can't figure out how to spend the money that's supposed to go to treatment as part of that measure as well. And then they just start throwing money out the door without any any way to measure how it goes. And, and every state has those kinds of problems. Government is made up of people and people make mistakes and people do selfish, greedy things and they, they screw stuff up. It happens even more in government, I believe, because there's no profit motive to restrain people from doing bad stuff or to keep them focused sharply on the task at hand to avoid making mistakes when possible. It's the worst in states like Oregon where you combine this ideology of an ever-present, ever-expanding, all-powerful government with people that don't even know how to make that work in the in the theoretical. I would argue that you can't make that work, that it doesn't work. But the people that do it here in Oregon are just god-awfully bad at running our state. As with the opinion stuff, there's no one that is really covering that stuff from that angle. The people that are running our state are, in many cases, not out for our best interest their ideology demands, in many cases, that they do things that are against our best interest and try to put one over on us, quite honestly. You see that oftentimes with some of the climate stuff that happens, not only here in Oregon, but elsewhere. The fact that that kind of investigatory stuff isn't really done by what I'll call the mainstream media, which is to say the left media in Oregon is why I've gotten into more of the investigatory stuff. And plus, we've had a couple of big things that have come around that have caught my interest, I truly think are worthy of investigation and writing about because they implicate our elected leaders in some 
really dubious stuff that voters in Oregon need to know about. So that's kind of my rationale behind the scandal-rama, as we'll call it today. Let's stop with the kind of introductory stuff and the self-justification stuff and just get into it. Let's start first with the OLCC mess. So briefly, probably everyone listening knows what I say, what I'm saying, or what I mean when I say the OLCC stuff. The Oregon Liquor Cannabis and Cannabis Commission, formerly the Oregon Liquor Control Commission, Earlier this year was caught in a scandal where some of the head officials in the OLCC were setting aside bottles of rare booze for their own personal use. Most of the coverage from the the lefty media in Oregon has been about that scandal, and they've done a, a pretty darn good job of running that to ground covering the story of, you know, the fact that Steve Marks, who was the director of the OLCC until recently, did this, engaged in this illegal practice, that a number, number of other managers have engaged in this illegal practice. At least Marks has appropriately lost his job. I don't think the others have yet, and they should, and the media should stay after that story, that those guys should be fired too. They All of them admitted to doing the thing by which they got these, what are apparently at market rates, very expensive bottles of whiskey at Oregon prices, which is to say a tiny fraction of what their market price would be. You know, that's abusing their their position. They shouldn't be doing that. And it's good that the this practice within the OLCC was was discovered and is being investigated not only by the media, but by the attorney general of the state of Oregon, who's pursuing potential criminal charges against these folks. That's all good. The angle that I've taken on it is all kind of comes from this letter that Tina Kotek sent on March 8th that says that my administration became aware of this OLCC bottle scandal mess after asking for Steve Mark's resignation. When I read that, that's what got me, my interest kind of peaked because maybe that's true. If so, it seems to me an odd thing to point out. And it would sure make a lot of sense if someone in the, in the administration knew about this bottle scandal And that precipitated in full or in part firing Steve Marks because the timing of it would make sense. So Marks tells his staff that he's resigning at the uh, request of Kotak on February 1st of this year. It appears that he was informed, likely not directly by the governor, but by a member of her staff on January 31st, so the day before that he was being asked to resign by the governor. By this time, there was pending in the state of Oregon a public records request from the Oregonian newspaper asking for documents related to the bottle scandal. So the the story had not broken yet. The investigation, the internal investigation within the OLCC had been conducted and it had been the conclusion was that Steve Marks and the others had engaged in illegal practices. They had been reprimanded. Yet, Kotek's letter maintains that they didn't, 
her administration. No one in her administration knew anything about it until after, on January 31st, they asked Marx to resign. Maybe that's true, but the timing of it seems odd because the story was about to break. It, in fact, did break right at the same time that Kotek sent her letter. That's why she sent her letter. And the timing of all of it, as I've explained in a couple pieces I've written about it, just always seemed fishy to me. Journalists are looking into this whole issue, and I've been trying to figure out you know, who knew what when. I've got public records requests into the state, the responses to those. I've been asking questions to people who work for the state, and they've been sometimes responding, sometimes not. And that line of inquiry hasn't gotten me a lot. Once it does, if it does, I'll certainly update you. But one interesting thing that came to light yesterday is that in response to public records request by a a reporter named Andrew Selsky for the Associated Press, he covers Oregon for the AP, the state of Oregon produced a bunch of documents related to communications from the governor's office or involving the governor's office and involving Steve Marks in the OLCC. One email that was produced was an email from Barry Leslie, who is the the director and at all relevant times has been the director of the Department of Administrative Services. It's a key role in the government, so DAS, Department of Administrative Services, does a bunch of, they're kind of like the main human resources organ for the state of Oregon. You know, Barry Leslie, appointed by the governor. She is a part of the governor's administration, a key part of the governor's administration. She formerly worked for Kate Brown in a higher-up position as well. So Barry Leslie, in this email on January 27th, the email is to Steve Marks's assistant, asking, and as well as someone in the governor's office, asking for a meeting with Steve Marks and this guy named Chris from the governor's office the following week. And of course, we know that following week is when Marx was informed that he was being asked to resign. So presumably the, the call that, ar- that arose from this email on January 27th is when that happened, likely, the following week. Anyway, so this email from Barry Leslie to these other folks, it's to Marx's assistant again and to someone in the governor's office, it copies an address that is at tinafororegon.com. Now, tinafororegon.com is, of course, the URL for Tina Kotek's campaign for governor that obviously was successful in 2022. It still exists as a thing. Assuming she runs for re-election in 2026, this will be the entity through which that campaign is executed. And it's pretty unusual for an email from the DAS director about official public business would be going to campaign email address. There's some pretty bright lines between public email addresses, public activities, and campaign activities well, this email, whether on purpose or inadvertently, went to someone at the at tinafororegon.com, which is bad for the Kotec administration. And, you know, frankly, what it does is it exposes emails from and to 
those campaign email addresses to public records requests because they clearly were using TinaForOregon.com emails to conduct public business. The public records law allows you to access, you know, any communications involving public business, whether they be private email addresses or public, in this case, private, a campaign email address. So I've updated my public records request to include requests for emails from and to TinaForOregon.com email addresses. We'll see what comes of that. But that's not all with this. The The really fishy thing about it is in, in this bunch of documents that the state produced in response to Andrew Selsky's request, that email on January 27th appears a number of times in this batch of documents. And that's not unusual in documents produced pursuant to a public records request. Because they're being picked up by, you know, the person who sent the email, the person who received it, and then there's emails back and forth, and that, of course, reproduces the email chain below it. So you see it appear a bunch of times in this production, but the first time that it appears, which is on page 36 of the production, the email address of the TinaForOregon.com recipient was redacted, so it's blacked out. Someone at the state, before they produced those documents, blacked out that email address, which is almost certainly a no-no. Public agencies in Oregon are allowed to redact things in records that they produce under certain circumstances only. Those include like if it deals with personnel matters, if it deals with someone's health history. There's a bunch of exemptions to the public records law that allow the, the state, in this case, to redact sensitive stuff, you know, personal information, you know, that's confidential, quite frankly, from getting out into the, the public. But there is no exemption for either the mistaken or pur- purposeful use of a campaign email address for public business. And it sure looks like that's what they tried to do. If, however ineptly, because they only redacted the one version of it. And then in other places, you can see straight up that there was this TinaForOregon.com email address that received the the email. And so it's very likely that this represents a violation of Oregon's public records law. It's understandable that the people that were collecting and producing these documents at the state did not want it known that one of the recipients on this email was with Tina Kotek's campaign, but that doesn't give them the legal right to redact that information. This is another kind of aspect of this this whole mess that doesn't directly have anything to do with OLCC, but it does have to do with potential wrongdoing on the part of the state trying to cover up something that would be embarrassing for them via their production of these public records. So I thought that was interesting. That hasn't been the use of the public of the campaign email. It's partial redaction hasn't been covered by anyone else yet that I'm aware of. I tweeted about it yesterday, but no one reads my tweets. That's only half joking. So I thought I'd talk about it again today. And maybe I'll end up writing about it at some point. The other, the other interesting thing about the email on the January 27th email is more directly involved with the OLCC scandal. Barry Leslie, again, the DAS director, she maintains that she didn't know anything about the scandal until 
January 31st of 2023, and that's possible. And uh, but her email came was sent is seeking the the meeting with Marks at which he was presumably terminated. She sent that email on January 27th. So maybe that is just coincidence. Maybe she was asking to meet with him to fire him without any knowledge of the the scandal and that it is just purely coincidental they were going to fire him anyway and then they found out about the bottle scandal but the timing of it sure seems interesting because this is when you know the media was sniffing around this stuff the internal investigation at the OLCC implicating its director was in writing was presumably knowable to people at DAS who are in charge of human resources things. Maybe it's a coincidence. If so, it seems kind of an odd coincidence. So keep keep your eye on this one. I'll have more for you as more information develops. And that brings us to the second phase of the scandal rama for today's podcast. And that of course has to do with the five hundred thousand dollars that was given to the Democratic Party of Oregon on October 4th, 2022, on a date in which Tina Kotek was trailing in the polls to Christine Drazen and the governor's race. $500,000 was the largest contribution ever received by the Democratic Party of Oregon, and they immediately flipped it into spending to attack Christine Drazen. Of course, Kotek ends up, you know, Drazen ends up losing her lead, Kotek ends up winning, not saying it was all because of the $500,000, but that certainly was part of the use of that $500,000. The Democratic Party of Oregon originally reported that the donation was from Prime Trust LLC, this kind of cryptocurrency vendor out of Nevada. The media starts asking, after the election, the media starts asking about, well, who's, who's Prime Trust? Why, do, why are they giving you five hundred grand? And then the Democrats refile their submission to the Secretary of State, now showing that Nishad Singh is the donor of the $500,000. Nishad Singh is a close associate of Sam Bankman-Fried, who is the former CEO of FTX and a host of related companies that did crypto trading. And Sam Bankman-Fried has been charged with various counts of fraud related to his operation of FTX, which is now in bankruptcy. It was rumored, last I wrote about this, that Singh was cooperating with the Department of Justice, the U.S. Department of Justice, in their investigation of Bankman-Fried. Well, earlier this week, he in fact pled guilty to a host of federal charges against him related to his role at FTX, including making a charge of making campaign donations in his name that were really donations from someone else, and that someone else being Sam Bankman-Fried. In other words, what, the, what he has pled guilty to doing with regard to federal political action committees is more or less what probably, I would suspect, happened in Oregon, that Singh was not the actual donor. He wasn't, the money did not come originally from him to the Democratic Party of Oregon. There's a very good chance that that money came from Sam Bankman-Fried or FTX or some other entity controlled by Sam Bankman-Fried, and Singh was the pass-through. 
if that is what happened, then that is illegal under Oregon law, much as it is illegal under federal law. And it is up to, at this point, the Oregon Secretary of State and the Oregon Department of Justice, the Attorney General, to prosecute crimes against Singh, state law crimes, for which he has not been charged as of yet. Which brings us back to the conflict of interest that Shamia Fagan, the Secretary of State, has. She's received over 400 grand in contributions from Democratic Party of Oregon over the years, and yet she presumably is overseeing this investigation. She appointed a former employee of the Democratic Party of Oregon to directly oversee the investigation. They are insisting that they can oversee the investigation in a fair way. Last week, filed a complaint to Oregon Attorney General Ellen Rosenblum asking her to take over the investigation because of Fagan's conflict and ideally because Rosenblum is similarly conflicted to kick the investigation out to the Marion County District Attorney. I did hear back from the AG's office that they are at this time are not pursuing my complaint, which is not Entirely surprising. I have emailed them back asking for the legal reason why, because my reading of the statute does not give them the ability to reject it and just not take any action on it. I think that they are required by the statute to make a judgment on the merits of the complaint one way or the other. And if they believe there's something to it to initiate an investigation, they at least right now are not doing that. Wherever the investigation comes from, at the state level, there at least has to be a very strong case that Singh violated state law, much as he just pled guilty that he violated federal law. So why there is a delay in at least moving against Singh is unknown to me, except to the degree that moving against Singh would raise the question of whether the state's going to move against the Democratic Party of Oregon. And with regard to any case against the DPO, what the state would have to show is that the DPO knowingly received the donation from Singh and eventually ended up reporting it as such when they knew or should have known that the money was coming from someone other than Singh. That's where Rosenblum and Fagan are not going to want to go because they don't want to implicate the Democratic Party of Oregon. That's why particularly Fagan cannot possibly fairly and fully investigate any criminality on the part of the DPO. Pleading guilty by Singh just makes what should be at the state level an open and shut case on Singh something that just should happen. And I don't, again, I don't know why they're they're not doing that, but it would seem that that's an easy prosecution, get his, his cooperation, right? So if he's going to cooperate with the feds, maybe he cooperates with the state of Oregon, maybe he pleads guilty to those charges, and maybe he then cooperates with prosecutors to get into what the Democratic Party of Oregon knew when they received the donation. That's what a fair and full investigation and prosecution would look like at this point. And, of course, that's not what Fagan is doing. That's not what Rosenblum is doing. 
And that really highlights the nature of their conflict of interest. And again, highlights how in many cases, our elected officials in Oregon are not doing the work of the people of Oregon, which in this case is to enforce campaign finance laws. They are, at least so far, carrying the water for their political ally, the Democratic Party of Oregon, which is not okay. And this kind of thing happens all the time in this state. It's not only in Oregon that it happens. but It happens a lot in Oregon, and it's Democrats who do it because they run the state. They've run the state for a long time, and they've gotten away with it. That's why I keep talking about this stuff. That's why I keep writing about this stuff, because it's not right, and Oregonians deserve to know and have have faith that their state is investigating whether these folks have violated state law when they made the largest ever donation to the DPO and when the DPO received its largest ever donation, which had some impact on the governor's race. Not saying that Kotech wouldn't have won without that $500,000. There's no way of knowing that. But it certainly came at an opportune time for Kotech when she was down in the polls. October 4th was like the the bottom of the trough for her campaign. It's when things were looking the best for Drazen. And that 500 grand was sure a shot in the arm at a difficult time to the DPO. And it would be great if Oregonians could have any faith that the people that are looking into potential criminality in the giving and receipt of that donation were actually interested in getting to the bottom of that and charging people with crimes if crimes were committed. That's the update I've got on those two scandals. I hope you enjoyed the scandal-rama. I'll be writing some more about it, I think, in upcoming days. As always, you can email me at jeff at eagerlawpc.com if you have questions or topics you want addressed on the podcast or in the newsletter. And if you're not already a paid subscriber to the Oregon Roundup, you can do that on oregonroundup.substack.com. Become a paid subscriber. That's how I justify doing all this crazy stuff that I do. And your support is greatly appreciated on the podcast end of things. If you have not yet subscribed to the Roundup podcast on your podcast app of choice, please do that. That helps other people find us. If you like it, go ahead and give us a five-star review. I'll read any written reviews we get on the podcast that are five-star. If you leave me less than five-star, I probably won't. But we're trying to grow the audience for this thing, trying to get this message out because we think, I think, it's a message that Oregonians need to hear and that they're not being exposed to in most other cases. So have a good weekend, and I will talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Roundup Podcast. To share your thoughts with Jeff, you can email him at jeff at oregonroundup.com. You can also subscribe to his newsletter at oregonroundup.substack.com.